Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about, about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up and he read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened upon him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. And when the sky was shut for three and a half years, there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd, and he went on his way. Three things I want to share with you this morning. Uh, A little bit all over the map, but all found here in our text. Here's the first one. What did you see this morning that if we want to be like Jesus, we better go to church? If we want to be like Jesus, we, we better go with church. I shared with you when we started this, this series, this gospel series of Luke, why I love Luke so much. Luke is, is just a phenomenal author, and, and, and he is because he, he draws you into the narrative. He draws you into the story. And, and, and I believe that Luke's secret to drawing you into the story is the fact that he includes so many details. And the details really make all the difference, right? And, and, and in fact, Luke includes so many things that none of the other gospel writers include. Uh, just, just think about it. It's because of Luke that we know that God is continuing the story of rescue. Right? So, so God is speaking in Malachi, and, and, and last time God speaks before, he's, he's silent about the rescue story. And he says, one is going to come in the spirit of Elijah, and he's going to turn the hearts of, of fathers to their children, children to their fathers. And, and, and then God is silent about his plan of rescue and redemption for 400 years. But Luke is the one that shows us that the angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah and picks up the conversation after 400 years of silence. And he says that your son is going to be named John. He's going to be great in the eyes of God. And he's going to turn the hearts of fathers to the children, children to their fathers. Picks up the same conversation. Luke points that out. Luke is the one that points out the conversation that Gabriel has with Mary. That's Luke, right? Luke is the only one that lets us in on any details of of Jesus' childhood. 
He's, he's the only one that, that, that shows us what Jesus was, was like even as a, as a little child or as a young man. All those details come from Luke. And here this morning we have another detail, and maybe you read right over it and you didn't get it. But it's kind of a big deal. Look at verse 16. It says, he went to Nazareth. That's his hometown. This is where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. As was his custom. On the Sabbath, he went to church. That's what it says. Now, on the Lord's day, Jesus went to church. And why did he do it? It says because it was his custom. Now, the word in Greek there is etho. It's the word from which we, we get our modern day word ethos, which is super popular in the business world, right? Everybody in business, all the, all the cutting edge businesses are trying to decide and define what their ethos is. Right? And this is, this is how they define that. Ethos is the fundamental character of a culture. Every business wants to identify what, what, is, what is our culture? What makes us up? What makes us stand out? Right? So the fundamental character of a culture, the underlying sentiment that informs its beliefs, its customs, and its practices. That's what ethos is. And, and, and hear me, our, our word here, it, it says that Jesus, uh, this is his ethos. This is his Etho, right? Our, our, our text says that going to church is part of, of Jesus' fundamental character. It's not just something he does occasionally. It's not something that he does once in a while. But this is part of who he is. Think, think about where we found him when Mary and Joseph lost him when he was 12. Where was he? At church. Right? He's at church. Now, now he goes home. And, uh, and he's kind of back in his home region where he's raised. And, and it's the Lord's Day. And so where do we find him? In church. That, that's where Jesus is. Why? Because church is, is part of his fundamental character. I want to take a little sidebar with you this morning. See, we live in this really strange day and age that the church is, I, I don't think has ever faced before. Where it, it seems like people are, are, are bashing the church more than ever before. Um, the, 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 there's these little sayings all over the internet and all over Facebook. People um, distribute under the, the, the guise of real Christianity. Well, well, real Christianity isn't like this. Real Christianity is this way. And here's one of them that just gets under my skin. Okay, I'll just share it with you. Ready? Here, you, you've heard it. You might have posted it. So that, no offense to you. But here it is. Don't go to church. Be the church. Don't go to church. Be the church. Right? And this, guys, I can't even tell you how popular this is. There's only one problem with this. It overlooks the fact that the church really has two meanings. See, see now the word church in the New Testament is ecclesia. It does mean the gathering. It means the gathering of people. Right? So it really is about the people, not necessarily a, a, about the place. But hear me, when the people of God gathered together, the kingdom of God erupted. It erupted so quickly that it went from a group of about 120 folks, which, by the way, 120 folks have to have a place to gather, kind of like we do this morning. And then it erupts overnight, and all of a sudden it's 3,120 folks. Guess what? They had to meet somewhere. And where the people of God met to worship corporately together also became known as the gathering or the church. And so the church is the people, but, but there's also a reference, the place where the people meet to worship God, they also call that place the church, and that's okay. That's okay. What people fail to realize is that gathering of people needs a place to gather. So hear me, yes, we are called to be the church. We're called to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. We are called to love God and to love people and to make a difference in people's lives. But we're never called to do that alone. See, that's my fear. That's what that saying says, is that you will just go out and make a difference on your own. 
But you're never called to go out and make a difference on your own. You're always called to go out and make a difference in the community that Christ has put you in. That's how we make a difference because iron sharpens iron and it gives us the strength we need to go out every day and to change the world for the betterment of of Jesus. Listen, you one of those people that just wants to be biblical? That's awesome, right? You want to throw off all the oppressive ways of religion You're going to throw off all the mistakes of the different denominations. You want to just be like Jesus? Awesome. Go to church. Go to church. And I'm not talking once in a while. I'm not talking occasionally. I'm not talking once a month or every third week or when you've got children's church. I'm saying go to, you want to be like Christ. Church was a fundamental part of his character. It was part of his DNA, who he was. And so if you want to be like Jesus, you want to throw off all those oppressive ways of religion, man, go to church. Make it part of, make make it not just something that you do. Make it part of who you are. That's who Jesus was. He was somebody in the depths of who he was that considered church important, okay? Number two. Number two, according to our text, we've got to see it. It's the underlying building theme that we'll find throughout the rest of the gospel. Jesus is God's rescue plan. Jesus is God's rescue plan. Verse 18 through 21. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right, you've got to kind of set the scene. Jesus' public ministry has begun. It began verse 14. It says he returned to Galilee. So Jesus goes to the, the region of Galilee and he begins performing uh, miracles and, 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 and great signs and wonders. Remember in Cana, he's going to turn water into wine. Capernaum, he's going to do great things. So Jesus has done ministry already. His ministry, his public ministry has begun. And now he's returned home into the region of, of Nazareth. And he's there, and, and what has happened before, when his ministry began, has followed him here now, and the people are talking about it. Oh my goodness, he's here. So Jesus goes home, and evidently when he goes to church, he figures out he's the guest preacher that morning. And so they hand him uh, a scroll. I, I think he probably selected the scroll. says, hey, I want you to go grab me uh, the book of Isaiah. And that's how their Bible was. It was in scrolls. And so they give him the book of Isaiah. And not quite like us where he can flip over to chapter 61. But he unrolls that thing down to where we would find our Isaiah 61. And he reads this quote from Isaiah 61. This quote about the year of the Lord's favor. Now that phrase didn't reference a specific year. That phrase was always about whenever the kingdom of God would come. That, that phrase was just about when the Messiah comes, when the kingdom of God is going to be established. That was called the year of, of the Lord's favor. Right? This is the long-awaited kingdom is finally going to arrive. And listen to what Jesus says in verse 21. He says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today this is a reality. This is the moment, a.k.a., that you've been waiting for. The Messiah is here now. The kingdom has arrived. Rescue is no longer just coming. Rescue is here. Jesus is saying, I am the anointed one. 
He's saying, I am going to preach the good news to the poor in spirit. I am going to proclaim freedom to the prisoners chained in sin. I am going to bring sight to the blind and they will see God. That's who I am. That's what Jesus is proclaiming. The kingdom is here and it is here today. It's here today. Now, there's some tension there, right? What about all the sin and the fallenness we live in? This is, this, is the, this is what Jesus proclaims. Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom of God. He is, he, it, it is here. But it is not yet completely fulfilled. See, he is coming back, and when he comes back, it will just be God's reign, and there will be no more sin, and there will be no more hurt, and there will be no more death. But that doesn't mean that the kingdom hasn't begun. The kingdom has begun. Friends, which, which this might freak you out because you think that you're a foreigner living in the world, but the truth is that you're a citizen living in the kingdom already. The kingdom of God has been established. So, so whose reign are we living under? That's the question we have to ask. Like, like we, we think that we're living under the reign of the U.S. government of which we get to elect its officials and we're really the ones in charge. By the way, you're fooling yourself if you really think you're the one in charge in America. I'm just, I love you, but just, just wake up. Um, so, like, I mean, we, we have some influence, right? But let's be honest, we have no idea what happens behind closed doors. But that's not who we're citizens of. I, I live in America. But I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. And, and it's amongst us now, even in the midst of all the hurt and the pain, God is working and doing miraculous things. We're no longer having to wait for God to move and God to heal and for the blind to see and for the prisoners to be set free. It's happening now. The kingdom is here. That's the good news of Jesus. The kingdom is here. Can, can you imagine to be a Jew who has waited I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for someone to stand up and to say, this is happening right now in your midst. I think the closest we could probably ever come is, is when Jesus comes back, when he calls us home, right? I, I think that's probably the closest we can ever get to feeling what they must have felt. The kingdom is here. It's a big deal. Here's the third thing I want you to see this morning. Final thing I'll share with you. It's also a big deal. According to our text, we, we find out pretty quickly that God's grace is greater than nationality, race, religion, or politics. God's grace is greater than nationality, race, religion, or politics. Starting in verse 22, it says, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And they, they asked, isn't this Joseph's son? And then Jesus says to him, surely, you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. And then he goes through and gives them the examples of Elijah and Elisha. Again, we, we kind of set the, the scene. Have to understand this is a really important part of this story, by the way. In fact, I'm going to tell you of our text this morning, this is, this is the key to this passage, this point. If you, if you miss this, you really misunderstood what occurs when Jesus is rejected at Nazareth, which is, which is kind of the, the heart of, of why we're here this morning, okay? So, so the rescuer has arrived, and the rescuer is speaking, 
And, and as the rescuer is speaking, the crowds are caught up in amazement. Because it says in verse 22, they are amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Now, there's two ways to read that sentence. A lot of people believe uh, that, that Jesus is speaking so graciously, he's speaking so eloquently, so beautifully, that the crowds are just attracted to him. Like he's a, he's a great poet, and everybody's just sitting going, wow, he's good. I'll tell you my problem with that. My problem with that's the Bible. Uh, Isaiah 53 says this, um, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Listen to this, it says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Okay, people think that, is that just referencing Christ's physical features? It says Jesus had no beauty, he had no majesty to attract, people weren't coming to him because, because he looked like a king, People weren't coming to him because he sounded like royalty. There is nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So I believe wholeheartedly that what this verse is is talking about is what the other half of the people believe this verse is talking about, that people were amazed not because Jesus was speaking graciously, but they were amazed because he was speaking about grace. They were amazed to hear someone stand up and talk about grace. Why? Because this isn't a gracious culture. This is a works-based, righteousness-based culture, isn't it? This is all about what you have to do. That's the culture of Judaism. Boy, does that sound familiar today? It's all about what you have to produce. And in the midst of these self-righteous people, Jesus comes and begins to preach grace. And they're floored. They're floored. They're amazed until they figure out what grace means. (laughs) See, he begins preaching grace until he makes it personal. They thought grace was really amazing until Jesus makes it personal and he points at them. And he does so by sharing two stories, right? He does so by by, by sharing two stories. So verse 23, it says Jesus had clearly uh, heard... uh, the rumblings, because surely he, he's going to quote this Proverbs. He surely heard these rumblings. Wait a second, this is Joseph's son. If he's really who he says he is, then let him prove it. Let him do in our midst what he's doing in those other areas of Galilee and Capernaum and Cana. And so Jesus kind of addresses the crowd's complaints, their demands for a sign. And he does so with these two stories. The first one is about Elijah. He says, you remember Elijah, the great prophet of God. You, you, you hold him up in high honor and high regards. So after all, that's who John is. He's coming in the spirit of Elijah. They, so so, so they, they knew who Elijah was. He's one of their great heroes. And so they, they lifted him up and they said, you remember Elijah? You remember that time of drought, three and a half years? Luke's, Luke points out other places, just his three. He says, uh, listen, by the way, did, did you remember there were many widows in Israel, yet Elijah was not sent to any one of them. Elijah wasn't sent to Israel's widows, right? In fact, the ESV version says Elijah was sent to none of them. Instead, God sent Elijah to a foreigner. Ooh. Wait, grace sounded good a second ago, Jesus. He says, yeah, let me tell you about grace. Elijah wasn't sent to anyone from Israel. He was sent to a foreigner. Whoo. Then Jesus follows that up with another story. He said, oh, and and Elisha, double portion of the spirit, right? I mean, let, let, let's talk about him. And, and he says, you know, and then, and then Elisha, he says, again, there are many lepers in Israel. And yet, you know what? 
Elisha didn't heal any of those lepers. Again, ESV says none of them were healed. It's interesting that the same phrase is used. Jesus is, is bringing attention to this. No one from Israel was healed by either of these great two men of God. Listen, who was? This might get you. Rather, God sent Elisha to heal Naaman, the Syrian. You guys heard anything about Syria lately? You think God might reign over everything, including the time that we spend in His Word and when we spend our time there? You think God might have a message for us today, His, His children, as we try to weigh the difficult things that we, we face here in life? So God doesn't show up to Israel in, in, in this passage, Elisha doesn't heal the lepers in Israel. Rather, God sends him to heal the, the, the leopard king of Syria. And again, it's about grace. It's about grace. So what's the point of all of this? Ready? Here we go. Verse 22. Everything here has to do with grace. Everything here has to do with grace. These, these words of grace. Jesus is not talking uh, it's not about how he's saying it's about what he's saying. Jesus, his hometown folks wanted a sign because they thought they deserved it. They thought they deserved it. They deserved something uh, more. Jesus instead shows them that they, they don't have any exclusive rights to what he has to offer. The Jews thought that the Messiah would be for them alone. They thought that he would be only for their race, that he would be only for their nation, that he had come only for their religion, that he would establish a kingdom that would be ruled according to their political point of view. And here Jesus says no to all of it. The grace of God is not just for you. You might want to write that down. The grace of God is not just for you. And it is not just for me. It's not just for your nation. It is not just for your race. This is what Jesus is teaching. It's not just for your religion. It is not just for your political party. Jesus says, I am forming a new people. I am gathering faithful from every tribe and nation and tongue. And all who look to me will be saved. I will rescue them, the foreigner, the alien. All skin colors, people from all nations, including Syria, regardless of their background, if they turn from sin and they turn to me, they will be rescued. Friends, that's grace. I think it's a lesson we need to learn or probably relearn, right? Surely we learned it at some point or we wouldn't be here. Maybe it's just a lesson we need to be reminded of. We're not privileged in order to be privileged. You know that? We're not, we're not privileged in order to be privileged. We're privileged because the grace of God that extends to foreigners and to aliens of whom we are. That's why we're privileged. Because of God's grace. He took you and I, who are foreigners and aliens, to the covenant and to the promise. And he made us children of God. That's Ephesians chapter 2. That's the lens we have to interpret our world through. We can't forget. If, if we forget this, if, 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 we, 
if we do, we run the risk of being just like the Jews in this passage that are going to completely miss Jesus because they think they have exclusive rights to him. Mm. Mm. They thought they deserved special treatment. So Jesus makes a point to prove to them what grace is really all about. So let me give you some application. I'll let you go. First and foremost, I would challenge you to make church a part of who you are. Not a part of your life, not just something that you do, but a part of who you are. So you may write down this question for yourself. I want you to write down this question. Do I go to church? Question. Do I go to church? I think you're here because you go to church. Here's the second part of it, though. Or is church part of who I am? Is church part of who I am? For Jesus, going to church was his ethos. It was a fundamental part of his character. And we live in this world where everybody says, I, I, I don't want religion. I, I, I don't want all, the, all that denominational stuff. I just want to be like Jesus. Awesome. You want to be like Jesus? Make church a part of who you are. A part of who you are. Not just something that you do. Then you'll be more like Jesus. All right? Make church a part of who you are. Number two. Maybe for someone here today, you you need to hear this. Let Jesus rescue you today. I love verse 21. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today. Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Today. And if you're here and and you've never trusted Christ, I would just simply say to you in, in, in love that today can be your day too. I look around and I get to see some of my brothers and sisters that I remember their day. I remember their day. I got to experience their, their day with them. So maybe you're here and you just need to hear these words. Ready? Rescue is still available today. And until Jesus returns, that, that is true every day. Rescue is available today. I don't know where you find yourself. I don't know what you're struggling with. I know there's hurt in this room. I can sense it. I can feel it. But I'm going to tell you, Jesus is ready and waiting. And rescue is available. You just have to cry out for it. You just have to turn to him, okay? Would you do that today? Would you do that today? Let Jesus rescue you. Number three, last one. It's a biggie, especially in our world today. Ready? You've got to let grace guide you. You've got to let grace guide you. Listen, we live in a broken, messed up, scary world, don't we? I mean, very real threats, very real problems. And in this place, we've allowed a lot of things to determine how we respond, haven't we? Some of the things that determine how we respond to crisis in our world, we, we, we let uh, our nationalism dictate that discussion. We let race dictate that discussion a lot more than we would ever admit. A lot more than we ever admit, race plays a role. Sometimes it's religion. It definitely has to do with our politics. We let all of those things factor and have an influence in our decisions, but there's one thing that has to reign over all. There's one lens through which all those things should be filtered. 
See, we, we tend to use those things as the filter. Those aren't the filter. There is one filter. That's the grace of God. That is the lens. And so sometimes we just have to step back from all the stuff going on in society, and we need to remember, what has God done for me? Like, who was I and who am I? I was a foreigner, and I was an alien, and, and I was not a citizen of the kingdom of God. See, Ephesians 2 says, I, I was dead in my sins and my transgressions. I was far away from Christ. I was lowly, but Jesus came because of his great love for us, and he raised us up. He brought us to life. He seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms, where we now reign with Jesus. And we're no longer foreigners and aliens, but we're citizens of the kingdom, and we're members of God's household. That's who I am. But I did not become that to just have a place of privilege. I became that to be a testimony of grace. Friends, you became a Christian so that God could use your life, who you were and who you are, as a testimony of grace. Our words, our actions our opinions about the difficulty that our world face should be dripping with the sweet nectar of God's grace. Should be dripping with the nectar of God's grace. Overflowing with the milk and honey of those that actually live in the promised land. Amen? So here's my challenge to you. Ready? Because again, we face some, some hard times. Here's the challenge. Uh, maybe you didn't know this about yourself, but this is the absolute truth. Ready? We've all drawn battle lines. We all have. And our battle lines are about the things that we discuss. They're about nationalism. They're about race. They're about religion. Right? They're, they're all about... I mean, so, so here's the deal. When we face difficulty, what we tend to do is we run to that place that we're comfortable with. And, and, we, and we view everything through the lens of nationalism or through the lens of race or through the lens of religion. So we, we kind of run to our familiar battle lines and we take up our position for our fight. That's a flesh reaction. And we're no longer people of flesh. So here's what I'm asking you to do. You've got to let the spirit reign over the flesh. So when you face those difficult decisions, when you read about things that, that rip you in multiple directions, before you go take any place in any line, you have to think about what God has done for you in Jesus first. You've got to let grace first interpret the world, not let the world interpret God's grace. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? When we preached through Hebrews, I had a good friend um, tell me, remember one of my, our points was that uh, Jesus... Uh, was, uh, oh gosh, I'm going to go blank, better than um, Darwinism stuff. Uh, yeah, evolution. And uh, he's like, I, I, man, I just believe in science so much. How could you say that? I said, I say that because for me, the Bible interprets everything in the world, including science. Uh, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't allow politics or nationalism or race or religion or what's going on in the world. That doesn't interpret Scripture. Scripture interprets everything else. So I believe there is a God that created everything. And he did it literally by speaking it into being because he's that big and that able. And I believe that that big and that able God is available to us today 
and has the power to heal even the most broken individuals of whom I am one of them. He has the power to take foreigners and aliens and refugees and turn them into sons and daughters and lovers of God. So let grace be your guide. I'm not, I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just telling you before you run to a party line, before you, you run and dig in for the battle that everybody else in the world seems to be ready to fight, let grace reign. Let grace fill your mind and your thoughts and your speech. And then if you have to take your place, at least you do so at a point of grace. Saying, I, I hate that I feel this way, but this is where I am. This is how I feel. Okay? Does that make sense? That's the story that's for us today. That's how we have to interpret what Jesus has for us. I think God is uh, sovereign. I think he's good, and I think he had us here for a reason. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord Jesus, thank you.